0: Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer, and I have with me today Rena Van Oust from Strata Central. Hey there, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm great. I am looking forward to sharing our wins and our challenges. It's been a few weeks. They've been stacking up. I've been saving them up to
1: share with you. But I'm going to ask you to kick us off your challenge for this week, Rina. Well, Amanda, my challenge for this week is a question that I received from one of my committee members. And I thought, oh, this is a very interesting query. There are two apartments that require replacement of the balcony tiles. And these are quite large apartments. We're talking about a huge cost in terms of tile replacement. And there were two options that were given to the Strata Committee by prospective contractors. One was to lay the tiles directly on a membrane, and that would cost roughly $100,000 for these two apartments. So, this is the quantum that we're talking about. But the other option was to lay them on what they call little chairs, which are a little support that would allow the water to run underneath the actual tiles. Yes. And laying on the membrane would actually mean that there'd be an increased step between the balcony and, and the actual apartment when the owners actually will have to walk down. And the query to me was, well, Rena, do we have to replace it like for like in terms of aesthetics and all that, and I said yes. Like for like is definitely what's required. But should it be on a membrane or should it be on the on the little chairs? When originally it was on the little chairs when the tiles were installed back in the eighties, but now in terms of the costs, there's an eighty thousand dollars difference between laying the tiles directly on a membrane or laying them on these little chairs that allow the water to go through. Man, so I thought that's a really interesting question in terms of are the ANS Corporation's obligations in respect to this? And does it require a general meeting resolution if we end up going on the membrane as opposed to the little chairs? Great question.
0: And it's funny that you raise this because I'm working with a client at the moment who wants this tiling system installed in their apartment as part oh. of a fix for a leaky balcony. Am I right in describing this as I've heard it described as a floating paver system or a floating tile yeah. system? Our experts out there, no doubt, will get in touch and have a lot of technical information for us about this, not our area of expertise, but I understand. My short opening is I understand this system that you're talking about. The obligation of an owner's corporation is to properly repair and maintain the common property. Now, our courts in New South Wales have been quite clear about the fact that it is up to the owner's corporation how they do that, which contractor they involve, which method they use, what the scope of work is, how much money they spend. And there have been cases where owners have tried to dictate, if you like, to the owner's corporation what the repair should be and who should do it and how it should be done. And the courts have just said, no, this is the owner's corporation's common property. It is up to the owners' corporation to decide how it is to be repaired and maintained, as long as it's done properly. Mm. And we have that word in section 106 of our legislation. So, not giving legal advice, of course, specific to this situation, which I don't know anything about, but that my first instinct in response to your question is if the owners' corporation has a contractor saying this is the best way to fix this problem, A, because it works, it makes a, a waterproof balcony, B, it is cost-effective, it is $100,000 or almost $100,000 cheaper than the other option, then I think it's open to the owners' corporation to say, yes, then this is how we are going to repair and maintain our common property. Now, it, it is a relevant fact that the appearance, the use, the aesthetics, the functionality of the balcony may change because of that decision. And it's going to be important to have a closer look at exactly how much and how significant that change is. So you've talked about different levels then leading to a different step from the the inside to the
1: outside. Yeah, I think that, yeah, because when you have, if we use the terminology that you use, the floating tiles, obviously it's a Mm. bit higher than the ones that are going to be laid directly on the membrane. But I I can't imagine it's going to be anything significant. It wouldn't be equal to a a step per se. It'll just be up higher. It could just be a few millimetres.
0: I'm not sure. Yeah. And as long as that means that the apartment still remains weatherproof and we're not going to have water coming in, then, yeah, my view is that it's open to the owners' corporation to make that decision as a repair and maintenance decision Yeah. and therefore not needing a
1: special resolution at a general meeting. Yeah. That's what I said, Amanda. I just thought, well, you know, we're not actually, you know, the aesthetics are the same, everything else is going to be the same, mm-hmm. you know, same quality tiles. We're just obviously just changing the type of underlay, so to speak, a membrane versus these little yes. chair supports.
0: And as our waterproofing methods and our construction methods and materials become more sophisticated, this is going to come up. And it does come up that we have better ways of doing things, cheaper ways of doing mm. things. And if we took the approach that the owner's corporation must always repair the common property using the same materials that were used back potentially 40, 50 years ago, yeah. we're going to have a problem. So, yeah. in my view, that's not the approach that the law takes. From a, a practical perspective, I do suggest that the committee is in close consultation with this owner and make sure that this owner understands what the finished product is going to look like. If it is a better product than what was there before, then having the contractor explain that. As I said, I'm working with a client who wants this installed Mm. in their apartment at the moment and it's repair and maintenance. And that is not the scope that the owners corporation proposed, but we've gone back and said, Hey, have you thought about this? And that contractor engaged by the owners corporation has said, yeah, if you want that, we're happy to do that. So having that communication piece is really important because we could be
1: preparing for a fight that we're just never going to have because the owner's on board. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the building manager has been in touch with both owners and I think that I'll just check it, whether or not the contractor has been involved in any of the sort of negotiations and conversations about the differences in terms of, I think especially just more, probably more that, that step issue. Um, mm. the ending, I think perhaps may need to be communicated in terms of impact on their amenity. So Thanks, Amanda. I appreciate that one.
0: Let us know how that one pans out for you. The challenge I have this week relates to an owner's corporation signing and sealing a development application. Now, we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, Rena. comes up every Mm. now and then. If an owner is going to be doing work at their lot that then affects the common property and they need council consent for that work, then if a development application is required to be lodged with council, an owners corporation has to sign that development application and stamp its seal on it because it is the owner of the common property that is going to be affected by the development. Now, a couple of times over the last few years, I have had uh, lot owners approach me saying, Amanda, I want to change the use of my lot my strata lot it's a commercial premises for example and it used to be an office space and i want to change the use to a music studio was one of the examples uh, from Mm. the past or i want to change the use to a beauty salon and i know i need to lodge a development application with the council because currently it's an office and that's something the council has to approve and i'm trying to lodge the development application but the council tells me because i'm a strata lot I need the owner's corporation's consent, their signature, and their common seal on the development application. And I can't get it. I can't get it because the owner's corporation doesn't want me to run a music school, doesn't want me to have a beauty salon, and they're not signing the DA. And so I'm stuck. Can't lodge with council, can't get my change of use. I can't run my business. And on these occasions, when owners have come to me, I have asked them whether their change of use, their new business premises, involves any. Alteration to the common property, whether they're doing any work at the property that impacts the common property. Are they installing new toilets? Are they putting air conditioning in? Are they doing anything that would change the external appearance of the lot? And often in these circumstances, the answer is no. Amanda, I'm putting a few desks in there. I'm putting up some partitions that are not permanently affixed to the wall. I'm really not doing anything. I just need to go to council because of the change of use. And my advice in that situation has been well, you don't need the owner's corporation's consent, the owner's corporation's signature on the development application because you're not affecting any common property. A change of use is not a change to the common property. A change of use is a planning issue. It is an issue that is solely within the remit of the local council. It is not an issue that an owner's corporation does or should have any say over. It is up to the council to decide whether you are permitted to operate that particular business or not. Yes, down the track, the owners can have a say in that by lodging any objections or submissions with mm. the council. But the owners' corporation can't hold you up with the lodgement of the development application because their property is just not being affected by any work that you're doing. Now, that is often a first challenge that we face in this situation, getting the owner's corporation to understand that it doesn't have to affix its seal to the application. And then the second challenge I then face, and I'm facing one at the moment, is getting the council to understand that situation and understand that because no common property is being affected, then just because it's a strata lot doesn't mean the DA needs an owners' corporation seal.
1: Well, I think the main of the challenge that you're facing is because on most DAs it says that you need the consent of the owners' corporation, not the consent of the individual owner. So I think that's probably the challenge in terms of how this is being treated by both the owners' corporation and and council. And I also think that the problem is that in the majority of cases that I've been involved with when we've had change of use, there has been an involvement of the change of the common property. It's Mm. highly rare that a, a use of a lot would be changing. I mean, I've had a commercial going, becoming residential. I've had offices becoming, you know, cafes. But the one that you're describing is definitely not one that would really impact significantly or at all on the owners' corporation.
0: Generally, when a client comes to me with this problem, it's because they've tried to just go to the counter of the, the council or even online these days. And you're right, Rena, there's a ticker box. Mm. Are you a strata lot? yes do you have the consent of the owners corporation? Oh, no. There is no actual inquiry into whether the property of the owners corporation being the common property is being impacted. And Mm. that in my view is the right question to be putting Mm. on these forms. Instead of saying strata lot, therefore need consent of the owners corporation, it should say strata lot. Are you impacting any common property? Yes or no? If yes, then please also have the signature of the owner's corporation on this form. If no, then the only property that's being affected is the lot itself. That is owned by you, the lot owner. Yours is the only signature needed on the form. I think that's the missing piece. And when I get involved, I have a letter turning into a popular template letter (laughs) that I then send to the council or if it's already been knocked back or encourage my client to attach it to the development application where I actually refer to the law, the Mm. Environmental Planning and Assessment Act, various cases that we have which make clear that if only lot property is being affected and if Mm. it's a change of use then the owners corporation's consent is not required but we have to drag council kicking and screaming to that conclusion and it's frustrating for owners who are often business owners who are losing money in the process of not being able to run this new business.
1: But in terms of Amanda the um the older strata schemes where there was mixed use do have bylaws where an owner had to notify the owners corporation or get their consent to change the use of their lot. So is Mm. that applicable in this particular situation or not really?
0: It hasn't been in the cases I've been involved in, but it's a very good point to make sure that we do check Bylaws. In terms of notification, I think that's either one of our standard model bylaws now since our 2015 legislation, or it might be in the Act somewhere that notifying the owner's corporation of a change of use is required. I think if there was a bylaw that said the owner's corporation's consent
1: is required to a change of use, that might be harsh, unconscionable, or oppressive. Yeah, I think now it would be, but back then it was quite commonly used because I think in those mixed use schemes, there was far more control required or perceived to be required to make sure that, you know, when you bought in and there was, you know, like X amount of restaurants and X amount of commercial suites and retail outlets that that mix didn't change too much. And also too, I think in some of these schemes where they're totally commercial and retail, the thinking was that you didn't want to have too much competition between the different types of entities that were, that were trading so that you didn't want to have like too many restaurants or too many hairdressers or whatever. So they tried to just have one hairdresser, you know, one nail salon, X amount of restaurants so that there was, yeah, and that was I think the thinking at the time in terms of why mm-hmm. that consent was required. It was to sort of have... To, which again is not right to stop competition because that's again yeah. <laughs> against the law. Um, yeah. I think that was the thinking at the time um, when these bylaws. This is we're talking about twenty years ago, Amanda, mm, when yeah, these mixed use sure. schemes were actually being introduced, and and we can see, I think, from what you're saying now, in reality, they are very hard to manage because you know you've got the owners again, like withholding their consent, not even knowing the impact of what they're trying to do people buying into these schemes, not really knowing them. When you buy into a a mixed-use scheme, there's always going to be an element of noise if if it's restaurants, you know. I've got one particular scheme where there's an owner who's complaining about and has been for like 10 years that the heat that comes in from the restaurants below Mm. is affecting her amenity. And, you know, she's gone to, we've had engineers do reports, we've had, she's gone to council and, you know, and then also the noise factor when there's been a new restaurant now that's just opened and you know the noise and I mean I understand like you know you don't want to live in noise but you know if you're living in Bondi it's going to be a bit hard to oh exactly you know like even though it's a prestige building it's still a Bondi so yeah so let us know how you go with that I mean what are we up to in terms of
0: Oh, look, the letter is drafted. My experience with these, having done a couple before, is that I can get council over the line, convince them eventually. But what's interesting is always dealing with different councils.
1: Yeah, that's right. They're all different.
0: Yeah, and this is a council that's not sort of in my local area. It's a little bit further removed and I haven't dealt with them before and I'm interested to see how my letter is received. And, you know, we can. There are all different types of bureaucracies. And so in some bureaucracies there can be, You know, this is the way we've done it. This is the way we've always Mm. done it. And this is what the form says. And so this is what's required. But our job as lawyers is to assist our clients to unpack that and explain to those who may need to understand that that may not necessarily be what the law is.
1: But why can't the Ernest Corporation just put all this to an end and just put the seal on? I mean, because they don't want the beauty parlor,
0: as I have called it. I have called it a beauty salon for the purposes of this podcast.
1: Okay, but it's not really. Is it? Is it a brothel? No, no, it's not a brothel.
0: No, it isn't. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Always fun with you, Rena Van Alst. Let me have your win for this week.
1: Well, my win, Amanda, this week is a really important one because it's talking about councils. This is a City of Sydney Council win, who have provided us with an extension for our annual fire safety statement, which was due actually in November last year. And they've given us now till April this year to have all the work completed. So basically, we were able to show you know, obviously the building management team was able to show that we've obviously been trying to get testing done, which was done. And because they give you a three-month window in which to submit the certificate once the testing has been done, we were concerned that we would have to retest again. Mm. And due to COVID, obviously inspections were delayed, contractors were unable to do the work on time. You know, you have to get a number of quotes. So it's quite a lot of work to be done with dampers. We're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And we would we were able to show council that we have approved these quotes that's works are scheduled to start half of it's already been done and normally the city of Sydney it's like even in last year in COVID it's like they didn't really care it was like you know thousand dollar fine a week until you submit it mm. but we were lucky to have someone that actually came down to the building looked at everything and then has given us an extension till in the end of April and has also said that we don't have to retest even though it's being submitted in April. Again, because otherwise we would have been out of time to retest. You Mm. had to retest again three months before April would mean we've got to do another retest. So, yeah, I just thought it was the first time ever that City of Sydney Council um, has given such an extension and has not required testing to be done again. So, yeah, I just thought that was a significant win. In terms of their experience with them, so yeah, Yeah. it
0: is good on you. I've seen that that change in council attitudes definitely through the pandemic, where there has been an acceptance that contractors can't get to buildings, uh, were locked down for a significant part of last year, and not able to come and do the necessary testing. And a lot of buildings, mine included, have been overdue with being able to lodge their annual fire safety statement. And I have seen councils apply some flexibility there. So it's a good reminder to our strata managers to check in with the relevant local council. If the building is mm. struggling to get their annual fire safety statement in on time, there may be some room to move there.
1: Yeah, I think also the other thing, the impact on the insurance policy to Amanda, like obviously it did have an impact, but in these cases, you can only do what you can do. And what we're finding now is that I mean, to add salt to the wound, we've got, you know, with the rain now also causing havoc in terms of people being able to attend. And I mean, I've got a building we're supposed to collect the books and records from, and they've just said, oh, we'll we close our office because of the storms. And I said, but when are you going to open? And they haven't even told me. So I don't mm. know what's going to happen there. Oh anyway, <laughs> yes, I'm sure in a few
0: weeks' time, we'll be chatting about the cleanup. Mm, mm. Exactly. Yep. Wrapping up with my win for this week, a notice to comply was issued to one of my lot owner clients some weeks ago. I think I might've mentioned this perhaps on a Friday live, maybe not a podcast, but a Friday Mm -hmm. live, I was talking about washing on the balcony, washing Mm -hmm. that was allegedly visible from other parts of the common property. And a notice to comply was issued by the owner's corporation to my lot owner clients. This is a formal notice under our New South Wales legislation requiring an owner to comply with a bylaw. And in this case, It was the washing on the balcony, no washing on the balcony bylaw, very common one in many of our buildings. This notice to comply was issued and ultimately an application was made to the tribunal for a penalty order because it was alleged that my clients did not comply with the notice and still had their washing on the balcony. Now, the win here is that the Penalty application very recently was withdrawn by the Owners' Corporation and it was withdrawn after I served a set of written submissions explaining to the Owners' Corporation and to the tribunal primarily why the notices to comply were not valid. Mm. And why there was therefore no legal basis for the owners corporation to pursue its penalty application. And for a number of reasons, the notices weren't valid, and the owners corporation had failed to file any evidence in support of its allegation that my clients were in breach of the bylaw. There's a really important lesson here for strata managers, committee members who are wanting to go down this path of issuing a notice to comply and then ultimately bringing penalty proceedings to make sure that you understand that in these applications the rules of evidence apply, there are strict requirements for what should be in a notice to comply, and it's very easy for it all to fall apart if you have a a lawyer on the other side who understands these laws and understands the rules of evidence and the procedure in the tribunal. So I do think, and I, I certainly did encourage this owners' corporation to get some legal advice and some legal representation when dealing with notices to comply and with penalty applications because
1: I think that was the downfall in this particular situation. I think also, Amanda, I think many strata managers don't really understand... The steps that need to be taken in order to progress these matters through the tribunal, and I think a lot of compulsory orders are made for strata managers. You know, in extreme cases, Amanda, where there has been lack of compliance with with the Act and with procedures. So I think in your case, it appears that even though your client may have been breaching the bylaws, it was more about how the strata committee perhaps went about it and what steps they took and how they took them. And also, I would think that most people wouldn't have be been able to well, not afford a lawyer, but I think a lot of people that would receive one of those notices mm. will not automatically go to a lawyer. So I think it's a testament to show managing agents that you never know who you who you're dealing with. And even though on the face of it it may seem like a very simple breach. Yep. Just watching on the balcony, you've got to cross your I's and dot your T's and make sure that everything is done correctly. So that the insurance Corporation at the end of the day doesn't sort of have egg on its face and then has to withdraw when perhaps there may have been some merit in their application.
0: Yes. Well, I'm certainly not going to make any admission here on this podcast that my clients were in breach of the bylaws. Definitely, there was a failure here to issue a proper notice to comply, attaching the right bylaws as in the form they were registered. And I think a lack of understanding that in penalty proceedings, it is very important that you put your case in a certain way so that the tribunal has evidence that is admissible, that it can accept and it can rely on. And the respondent the lot owner can then understand the case that is being put against it and the case that it has to meet so who knows uh, what may happen in the future in that building when it comes to bylaw enforcement and notices to comply but I think a, a good lesson there to make sure that you don't underestimate the formality of that process Thank you very much for spending time with me today, Rena. I will look forward to chatting with you next time. Send you out into your Strata day.
1: Thanks, Amanda. See you next time. See you later. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their Strata property.